Is your prostate waking you up more often than your alarm clock? The fact is, the older you get, the more likely you'll have prostate problems, which can affect your everyday life. That's where Prostate Complete by Real Health comes in. Prostate Complete is the result of 20 years of experience as a leader in men's health. The powerful formula in Prostate Complete supports natural prostate function and reduced urinary urges for a better quality of life. Available at Walmart. Visit prostateoneperday.com for special offers. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You are listening to The Real Men Feel Show with Andy Grant. Real Men Feel encourages men to allow and express all of their emotions. Despite what you may have been taught, all emotions do serve you. Real Men Feel is committed to engaging in discussions that most men aren't having. All links mentioned in each episode are in the show notes found on the blog at realmenfeel.org. Now, let's get into this week's show. Hello and welcome to Real Men Feel. This is your host, Andy Grant. Thank you for joining for this uh, for, for another episode of Real Men Feel. And, you know, Real Men Feel is really about a space for those uncomfortable conversations that most men aren't having, but all men, and, and indeed all humans, can benefit from. And one of the biggest movements of the past couple of years has been the Me Too movement. And it certainly has done a wonderful job of getting everyone talking, but perhaps not communicating well. Um, and I think Me Too has shown up in at least a dozen episodes of Real Men Feel this past year. And it also was the triggering event for the most recent book by our guest today. I want to welcome award-winning author, journalist, and TV host, Cleo Stiller, whose book Modern Manhood uses conversations from real men, yay, and women around the Me Too movement. Because whether with family, coworkers, or on a date, these conversations are taking place daily, and many are unsure of how to navigate that gray area. So please welcome Cleo Stiller. <laughs> Hi, thank you so much for having me. And that's a great intro. I was like, ooh, very interesting, yeah. <laughs> great. All right, I pulled in one person at least. <laughs> <laughs> good. We're, We're done good here. Awesome, yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. So, so I really want to start at the beginning. And, and what got you interested in writing about men and masculinity? Well, I'll tell you, it, it would not have been my natural pick. Um, I was hosting a television show for several years on for Univision's cable network called Fusion. And the show was called Sex Right Now with Cleo Stiller. Um, pretty provocative title, obviously, but it was a really genuine, thoughtful um, television show that explored topics of gender identity, body confidence, reproductive rights, health technology, and sort of the ways that um, the shifting cultural attitudes and influence from, you know, um, millennials and how technology is changing these really intimate spaces in our lives were just creating these sort of unprecedented situations. Um, and I started that show because I was a health reporter and you, this is, it was only in 2014, by the way, but um, culturally speaking for this country, that's sort of like dog years. So at the time, right, YouTube was blowing, was massive. Um, and everyone was going there for their like, oh my God, is this normal? Has anyone heard about this before? Like, ugh. Um, and obviously a lot of the content on YouTube is not factually accurate. So we created that show as sort of a benchmark of like, this is what's happening. Um, this is what people all over the country are feeling and how they're responding to these really new, um, factors in our lives. So that was the television show I hosted for three years and was kind of like happily 
plodding along there on that, in that area. And then 2017 happened, um, which was when the Harvey Weinstein scandal um, blew up and Me Too hit the mainstream. And I started getting messages from folks who watched my show, particularly straight men, who were like, are you going to do a season on this? Because I have so much to say about what's happening right now, but I'm kind of afraid to say anything because I don't want to get in trouble. Mm. And then inevitably, right, they would ask me a question. And it was the sort of question... um, and they, these, thing, these questions ran the gamut from something about dating, something about parenting, something about work, just like existing in real life. And it was the sort of question where five years ago, you'd be like, oh, I don't know, dude, like pick up a book, ask your brother. Um, but today, things really are changing so rapidly that a lot of um, what we were taught growing up about what it means to be a good man or a good woman for that matter is changing. And um, there are so many nuances, right? Um, And it just, you know, so these like questions are piling in my inbox over the last two years. So much so to the point I was like, well, hell if I know, right? Um, we're all kind of fumbling around in the dark right now. So that's how this book was born because, um, I will tell you that, you know, while these questions were coming in, I was also attending events and speaking at events that were primarily for women and survivors. And they were having these really profound conversations. And then someone would say, where are all the men? you know, where are our allies? They don't care. And I knew men care because I had all of these inboxes um, filled with them. So that's how the book was born. Hmm. Yeah. And I, 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 I have the book and I, my intention was to just skim it. um, Yeah. But it pulled me in and I, I'm actually, I, I've read half of it. I'll finish the rest of it tonight, I bet. And what I appreciate and, and what's different from, from other authors is that you, you really tackle this as a journalist. It, it's much more a, a research book than Cleo's thoughts on life, right? For, I mean, honestly, this is like, I, I kind of um, like nudge, nudge, wink, wink, call myself a non-expert because my gift at this point is that I've been in the reporting field for so long that I have a reputation where people will trust me with their stories and I present them in a very factual way. Um, And when it's an experience, I just present it. This is their experience, right? No stigma, no judgment on my part. Um, And because of that, right, this isn't like what Cleo Stiller thinks modern manhood is. This is, this is a crowdsourced document. Like this is what our country is saying about what a good man is today. And I think that's really important because a lot of our conversations sort of happen in vacuums, right? Mm. I mean, you know, if you are talking about this, you're probably on a group thread with your guy friends and you all are your friends. So you're kind of from the same social circle. And this book was really an attempt to be like, okay, let's all get on the same page here and figure out how we want to move forward. Right. Now for, I'm, I'm sure there are men who just see modern manhood written by a woman. <laughs> and so what, what sort of flack, if any, has come your way from, from people that don't realize it's research, it's crowdsourced, that just think it's you writing about what a man should be? 
It's exactly that. It's exactly what you just said. Um, and then, and I will always then say, that's a really, cause it's usually a question. What is a woman doing writing a book about manhood? And I'll say, that's a really great question. Um, and I think it is because I, you know, social media, um, political divisiveness right now has it so that anytime anyone engages with anybody, um, that they don't know very well, it's always taken as a, as a threat, right. Um, or an attack. And I really, I don't, that's not how I'm operating in this world. So when someone asks me that, I know they're trying to give me a little jab, but I really don't feel that because I get why men would be like, fuck off. Like what? No, it's a great question. What is a woman doing? writing a book intended for men about manhood. And my point is, okay, if you read it, you obviously see like this, again, it's crowdsourced. This, this is really not about my perspective, but also that I think it is really a value to have all genders perspectives at one spot, right? Yes, men need to talk to men about this, and they are, and I hope it continues to happen. But women also need to talk to men about this, and men also need to be heard by women. Um, and newsflash, that doesn't happen a lot. Mm. So, yeah, I, th I think that there is value to bringing both sides to the table. Yeah. So I've, uh, I have a background in kind of a spiritual work, personal growth, and I've been one of the few or only yeah. men at lots of events with, with lots of women. But you're mentioning the kind of the Me Too movement and, and meetings of survivors. That's definitely a place I wouldn't go. I, like, it's my assumption that this is a time where a lot of women are angry and they would not want a man entering that sort of sacred space of healing and sharing. So mm -hmm. have I been wrong on that? Or It's really... I mean, your question is, is honestly could have been dealt with in this book. It's a, it's, um, that is a really tough question and there are no right or wrong answers. There are, you know, I, this term gets thrown around a lot, but like safe spaces, right? Um, conversations that are happening for people of like experiences to, so that they can feel heard and seen and protected and not at risk. Those spaces are really important, but I also know that often in, in these events, like I said, then people look around and they're like, why is it just us here? Like, where are our allies? So I would recommend if you want to go, and I love that you might want to go, that's a wonderful impulse, that you reach out to the event organizer and be like, I'd love to show up as an ally um, I'm doing work with my, you know, with myself or with my community and I would love to be there, but not if it's not going to be appropriate or wanted. And they might say, you know, I thank you for asking, but this is kind of a safe space. And then, and don't be offended. Like that's fine. But, oh my gosh, how, this is why I wrote the book. Cause it's so heartening to hear. Yeah. I mean, and you're right. It probably would be a little bit uncomfortable, but that's, that's the kind of work that's required right now. Like it's an uncomfortable time. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And so the, the subtitle of the book is conversations about the complicated world of being a good man today. Yes. So that made me think, does that mean it's, it's easier to be a bad man? Ooh, you're the first person to ask me that. Yes. Um, <laughs> that's a good question. So here's what I will say. 
and I'm not the only person to say this. I think like Jackson Katz talked about this recently on an NPR interview, but one important component of this Me Too movement is that in modern manhood, for example, we, we only deal with the gray areas. Mm. Nothing that we discussed in that book was violence. It won't get you locked up. It's not illegal. So I didn't even touch that because I think that there's so much work to be done in the like nitty gritty, like, but I was raised to do that. And like one woman was offended by it, but then another woman wasn't and I'm getting mixed signals and I feel like I'm walking on eggshells. That's the world that most of us are existing in. It's this, like, the bad guy, if you can point to, like, Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby, right, and say, well, that's not me, so I'm a good guy. And I heard that. That was actually, I wanted to call the book, but I'm one of the good guys, (laughs) because I heard that over and over again. That's where the real work is, because um, it's a distraction. Like, bad guy is, like, the worst you know, 0.5% behavior. Like, gosh, I hope you're not a serial, you know, sexual assaulter. Like, that's a horrible thing. But is there also work to be done in how you identify as a good man? Does a good man hire women even though he risks the, you know, like, there, there are these questions that people are really grappling with. That's, that's why it's complicated to be a good man and it's much easier to point and be like, well, I'm not Harvey Weinstein. I'm not a bad guy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, I didn't really mean it from those extremes. Right. But, but that fits. But uh, I guess I'm more, there's definitely, and it might be a generational thing. There's definitely the guys that there's the gray zone. And instead of being on, well, they're probably uncomfortable, but instead of like, how do we smooth this out? They're just like, well, this gray zone is what I'm used to plowing right through, and I'm just going to keep doing that. You know, that's, that's kind of what I meant. The people that aren't willing, aren't interested in being aware, aren't interested in, in conversation, um, and maybe they just end up in jail. Maybe they just get forced out. Uh, you know, I don't know what's going to be where they'll be. Well, I'll tell you, some of them are going to, are in my book, because generally speaking, unless you are, again, operating in that, like, really small percentage of like violent illegal areas most people are assuming they're good guys right um and they're not aware that their behavior might be hurting people unless they are imp- and unless they get impacted and i know that because and i had a several men who when they found out i was writing this book they were like oh thank God, finally, someone to listen to my story. Wait till I tell you this. And can I share one with you? It's a good one, I think. So it's from the work chapter. Um, And, you know, these interviews that I did are from all over the country, right? It's really important that you interview someone in their 50s from rural North Carolina versus someone in their 20s from South Central LA and Indiana, right? Because regionally and ethnically and your class background really makes a difference on what your values are or what what you think a good man might be right in the day-to-day so I do find that regionally you really tend to get different kind of stories so this guy reached out to me he's in his early 40s um and he was like do I have a story for you so this is a work story and um 
he lost his job. I'll tell you the, I'll tell you the conclusion and now I'll tell you why. And he was really pissed about it. So he really wants to get this story in the book. So he had gone into work one day. He worked in some sort of plant. They were manufacturing something there. Um, he'd been there for a really long time. And he and the CEO's assistant had this kind of like casual repartee that they enacted often. Um, and one day he walks in, not a day unlike any other, and um, she was eating a donut. And he, he said to her, I wouldn't keep eating those donuts if I were you. You're going to get fat and your husband's going to leave you. And she was like, he'd never leave me. I'm too good on my knees. And he thought nothing of it because I guess that that's kind of a normal thing for them. So, all right, no big deal. He goes about his day. Later in the day, he goes into the break room where a bunch of people are and she's there and she's like working on paperwork and sucking on a pen while doing the paperwork. And he says, oh, those must be those famous oral skills that your husband's never going to leave you for. And, uh, and thinks nothing of it. And then, you know, gets a call the next day, HR, hey, you mind coming in on his day off, goes in. They're like, we heard that you said this. And he's like, okay, I did say it, but it's out of, con you know, and then he explains the whole story. And they're like, okay, he lost his job. Wow. Um, and for him, this is shocking, right? Like, what the hell happened? What is going on right now? What is this? Everything is upside down. And so for someone like him, he, he thinks of himself as a good guy. He is completely taken aback by the repercussions that he's facing now. And I'm hoping, like most of us hear that story and you're like, ooh, I would not have said that if I were you, right? Right. But, but in many other ways, this could be a good guy. And, and he's just not cognizant of what he's saying or how his behavior is impacting other people. And I would venture to guess that perhaps there are other things he does that might toe the line, right? So when you ask me, like, is it, you know, are people who are not interested in talking or considering about it, like, is this time going to pass them by? Possibly, but I don't think so because we're starting to hold people accountable now so that people who previously were completely unaware can actually get a little bit of a reality check and hope hopefully, you know, without laying, like, you know, you don't want people to lose their jobs, right? But if they are jerks, um, to be more mindful and cognizant, like, mm, might not want to behave this way anymore. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there were a couple comments I hear most from guests. So when Me Too first broke into the news, we had a panel group on. We had men and women talking about that, did a show on Me Too, a show on Time's Up. And then since then, it has just spontaneously come up in interviews with, with other men. And probably the most common thing is men saying they no longer know how to act in the post-Me Too world. You know, can I compliment women? You know, everything I was taught about being a nice guy and a gentleman, if I open the door, I, I now it's an insult to someone. Like, and, <laughs> yeah. so it is. And, and again, in your work example, um, it seemed like those two people had, you know, sexual innuendo and jokes was okay. And yeah. then oh, and it wasn't. And so I can totally feel for that guy being shocked and losing his job. Um, so... 
it, is there no right way? Are we still, is it just being created day by day? So, and, and this is where, this is why this book is so meaty. It's like, okay. And the stories I have to say, I mean, if you enjoyed hearing that story, get the book, dive in because it's just, it's tons of stories like this. When people found out I was writing this book, people all, you know, every story, um, sorry, every chapter. So there's dating, work, sex, money, friendship. Every chapter is led with a story that just kind of like encapsulates the whole conversation we're going to have in that chapter. And every person, when they found out I was writing the book, they came to me. These are stories from men who are like need to get this stuff off their chest, right? Like they're either pissed or totally confused. Or like how the hell did this go wrong? Right? So take, um, I, the example of holding the door, we didn't deal with that in the book, but I will say that came up a lot as people's final, like, you know, everything has gone to hell in a handbasket when you don't even know if you can open a door or not, right? So here's the underlying message of the book. Instead of being concerned with what does a good man do and what does a good woman do, this book empowers you um, with like, research and just knowing what everyone else is saying about it to get really clear on behavior that you previously haven't questioned because most of this stuff is socialization right it's like what your parents taught you was the right thing but do we want to be doing the same things as our parents it was noble then is it noble now is it chivalrous what are we doing with chivalry so what I offer and I think is most empowering, particularly as younger generations kind of bend the gender binary anyway, is to get really clear with yourself about what kind of person you want to be. Do you want to be someone that hurts people's feelings? Hopefully not, right? Okay. Then listen to behavior. You know, if someone has said, like, listen, that really offended me when you said that or you did that, listen to that. You know, what made you do that? Did you think you were being funny? Were you trying to show off a little bit? Were you um, overcompensating for an insecurity? Get really clear on what motivated you. And if it was something like that, like, don't do it again, right? Um, and move on. And if it's something like, do you compliment people? Do you hold the door? Do you want to hold the door for the person behind you? Is that like, is that something that makes you feel good? Then you should do it. Don't hold the door open because it's a woman coming or a man coming. Hold the door open because that's what a good person does. And when you're really sure, like, it sounds simple, but that makes it way less confusing and way less, oh my God, the rules are changing and like blah, blah, blah. Take away all of this like outdated notions of like women need the doors held, but men don't, blah, blah, blah. Hold the door because you're a good guy and you should hold the door for the person coming up behind you. When you're complimenting someone, if it's a woman, maybe can you compliment something about their work ethic? or their personality or their behavior instead of their appearance. That's like, it's a subtle, subtle change, but it might put you on a different path, 
right? These things, um, I truly believe that most people out there want to do the right thing. They don't want to walk around um, upsetting people. And so I think the best course of action, right, is to get, stop, listen to what people are telling you. And then take that opportunity to reflect on your own behavior. And then you're the adult. Like, what do you want to do? You know? Mm-hmm. Cool. Is that helpful? Yeah, it, it, it is. And, it, and, it, and it's, it, it, it's case by case. And so I'm, so I, 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 opened the, I opened the door for who I opened the door for humans behind me. Yes. I've, I've never had it. I've never had an experience of, of a woman taking offense and saying, don't you dare do that. <laughs> but some people say that's happened to them. So maybe it does. But I've also noted, I, and I, so I, I work at home, I work alone. So it's only social environments that I actually see human beings walking around. Yeah. I've made a point now, if I think a guy's wearing something cool, I'll tell them. Whereas in the past, I would only say it to women. So yes. it's making me treat, it's making me be equal in my compliments at least. And that is very helpful. Like that, and that is why these more nuanced um, conversations that are happening because of Me Too are still very helpful. Because if you thought it was like weird to compliment men before, clearly you've been like, why is that weird? Why do I only compliment women? I don't like that. Then you adjust your behavior and you move forward. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it, as with all things, some people are just so resistant to change that they fight it, make it a bigger, there's a lot of drama. And I do think that, you know, you, you talk about the man box and a, a well-taught man who obeys the man box, it's tough to accept change, especially when yes. it's foisted on them, not by, by them choosing to make change. So I, I do think that's a big part of this. Well, and that, this is the thing. So, um, and I'm blanking. It's been a hot minute since I looked at the man box, but have, do you, have you talked about the man box on your show before? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. So people know what constitutes being in the man box and studies have shown that certainly like a certain portion of the population feels comfortable with those qualities, but a large amount of men don't. They're like that you know, one of those doesn't work for me or 75% of those don't work for me. And, and we know this, right? Um, they're increasingly men are hopefully going to be able more comfortable voicing their discomfort, their depression that they're working through, their isolation, their loneliness. We know that men, because they're human, have feelings and being these like stoic creatures that just have no feelings and the only feeling they're comfortable expressing is anger, like that does not work for most men. So I, I, I do find, you know, there was a lot of concern about when I was writing this book, if I was just going to get lambasted by men online and become a target Hopefully that never happens, but I am finding this book is landing pretty well with men because they're like, thank you, right? Take a load off. My God, it, it, I'm, I will say as a woman, I learned a lot reporting this out. I, I did not realize the pressure and the, the resulting pain and isolation that comes from being taught from such a young age, like don't talk about feelings. Don't, you don't really have feelings. You're not allowed to have feelings. Um, you are on your own, buddy. That's 
scary. You know, that's yeah. hard. Yeah. It's interesting. I have not encountered anyone saying that, that any male is comfortable and likes to be in the man box. So it's interesting that, that you say people, people have identified. It's like, yep. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I, I would, I think they're lying to themselves and eventually they realize this isn't satisfying, but. It's a very, it's a small, what, what I was trying to say is it's a small portion of men who think that they fit squarely within the man box. And I would never ordain to say like, I'm sure I know what you're really thinking and you don't even know you're thinking it yet. But by virtue of like a box is only going to be comfortable for a very small portion of the population. Um, and I agree. If we, if we allowed that person to exist out of the box, who knows what they would really feel. Right. Cause I think that's the, the, the goal of equality amongst all people is that no, no gender, no race, no job yeah. is in a box. You're just, yes. yeah. Let's open open everyone's boxes for Christmas this year. <laughs> and that's, so this is kind of the other point of why I wrote this book was because I saw what was happening and can still happen if we're not careful, which is that we've, we have just really comfortable living in boxes because it's been passed down for us for decades from parents and grandparents, etc. And so what I was seeing was, there, we're obviously an opportunity right now to look back, look present and look forward and think really critically about what we want to take from the past that still works and what we want to leave behind. Um, for example, I mentioned this in the book, but I think like a handful of people mentioned to me, leave it to Beaver, like the Cleavers. Um, and that show went off air in the 1960s and yet that model is still so powerful for people though still really hearkening back to that and I so we have a really strong attachment to the past um yeah I'll just leave it there right people want to like bring things back from the past so um and I I think that it's so uncomfortable right now because there are we're asking to break such strong ties to the past mm. that there is an there are some people, right? And I and I have interviewed like a, a fair amount of them who were like, I was on board with Me Too when it first started, but now it's all gone too far. And like I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to talk about it anymore. I'm done. Enough. And that's really unfortunate because we can move forward. And I love this, like GQ's new issue out this quarter is called The New Masculinity with Pharrell on the cover. Do you remember a couple years ago when Pharrell's Blurred Lines came out? Yeah. Like, mm, she says no, but I'm really gonna get it, you know? So amazing that Pharrell is having a moment of reckoning. Um, you know, one of my favorite podcasts is A Hidden Brain. They just did an episode on, the title's a little bit back, the lonely American male, but they're really trying to engage with this idea of, of where we want to go with masculinity and femininity. So I am hopeful because what I don't want to see happen is people get so pissed off and frustrated with messing up because we're not sitting in the boxes anymore that they're like, forget this. I'm going back in the box. Mm. Like, I don't want to talk about it. Um, yeah, I feel like the the fear is that someone says something wrong and, and trying to navigate, oh, did that joke go too far? Did that comment take it the wrong way? And instead of just just 
a, a, a woman in front of them correcting them, saying, hey, that offended, you know, taking care of it then. Yeah. Uh, they end up on the news or they lose their job. Become, <laughs> you know, it's this catastrophizing yeah. any interaction seems to be the, 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 the fear uh, in day to day. But I, another one I heard often, and I, I know you, you talk about it in the book, and this one shocked me, but the notion of, of men in business that to avoid me too, I'm going to stop hiring women. Mm. And they're serious. And mm. this, this blew my mind. I was like, well, why don't you just mm. stop the sexual harassment? Isn't that easier? Mm. To, like, I, I, mm. So, so, so what do you those guys? Oh, oh my God. Well, that was really the most disheartening, I'll tell you. I mean, I did, I, the sex chapter leads with a story that was disturbing as well. But the, the amount of men I talked to who had real hiring power and were just, just like, listen, and they all talked to me on the condition of anonymity, which is understandable. But these are men all, all over the country in all different sectors. And they were like, I don't want to bother. Holy, sh- oh my God. That is, it's a, we cannot have that. We cannot have that. Um, work is money. That's our livelihood. Like I, we cannot have men not hiring women, not wanting to mentor their female employees um, because of how it's being perceived. So oh, the work chapter in general is, is, I think, like the most important to, to read if, if you are someone who's working with these issues because the other stuff is kind of relational. Business is very serious, though. I, business, you know, our livelihoods are very serious, and so I take this one very seriously. Um, the general takeaways from that chapter are that, first of all, if you're reading the book and you're a good man, you cannot proceed with the attitude of, like, this. it's just not worth the risk. Like, I'm not working with women. That is not what a good man does. If you do that, you are not a good man, and you have to sit with that. If you are a good man, you're going to have to work through this fear. And here is how it can be done. First of all, the way that we, and we talk about this in the book, and I think it's kind of helpful to always get a historical context, because the workplace as initially created was not made for women and men. It was made for men. Women were at home. And then in, during World War II, when men were fighting, Women were moved into the workspace, but there were no men. So it was just women. And then when the men came back from fighting and women went back to the home and then some were like, hey, I want to be in work, right? And so we've had women now increasingly, obviously, moving into the workplace. The workplace never, as, a, as like an overarching um, culture, never accounted for that. Women, when they first entered the workplace, were in, entered in support roles to men which kind of mirrored the way that we previously thought about men and women, right? Even in our personal roles. So if you are feeling like it's confusing, it is confusing. It is totally confusing. And that's because we never upgraded to this idea of like, oh, men and women should and can be equal in the workplace. We said it, but structurally, we never made any cultural adjustments, right? And there are a lot of other power inequities that happen in workplaces that we never up-leveled either. So don't, like, you're not on your own. Everyone feels like that. And that's because 
as a society, we never leveled up. We never leveled up. So we got to level up. And here are some ways, some small tinkering things that you can do. You do really have to be mindful. So like what I heard from guys um, was, it's like I have to watch every goddamn word that comes out of my mouth. Yes, you do. You do. And what I will say is I totally empathize with the fact that you're not used to that. And so it feels like it's a pain in the ass. It's uncomfortable. It's taxing on your brain. I completely understand that. It is necessary right now. And part of the reason, as I said, is because things that previously were okay, those really were never okay. That this, this has been bubbling under the surface for women for decades and it wasn't okay. And so this adjustment period does mean that you have, and, and this I have heard a lot, I feel like I'm walking on eggshells. There is a little bit of that. I, if it makes you feel better as a man to know that women and people of color often always feel like they're walking on eggshells and almost always have to watch every goddamn word that comes out of their mouth because of how they're going to be perceived. So yes, it's uncomfortable, but it's necessary right now, particularly if you are a good person and you are really committed to seeing our culture get more safe and comfortable and equitable for everybody, you kind of have to take one for the team. So when you're mentoring, um, when you're taking like one-on-one meetings, right? I heard this a lot. If you, if you take one-on-one meetings with the guys on your team, you have to take them with the women on your team. If you do not want to be alone with a woman in a room with a closed door, then don't close the door. But then you also have to keep it open for your, your male employees. If you are used to running a lot of business outside of your workspace, listen, I'm a reporter. Almost every job I've ever gotten has gone down drinks after like a, a live shoot, right? I, I get that. And actually, I, I talk about one incident where that, that was, did not really go in my favor. But I get it. Business happens outside of the office a lot. But you do have to be thoughtful about it, right? It probably should not go down over dinner oh, far away from the office for no reason. It should go down during business hours. Don't text your employees on their personal devices. That's just like every employee doesn't want their boss texting them on their cell phone anyway. So like do everyone a favor, stop doing that. It things that you're like, oh, but these rules and it's making it less casual and I, you know, you need to be friendly with people you're doing business with. Totally agree. Hear you there. But it's going to have to be done a little bit differently. And that is, you know, and I hear from people that they're like, well, that's not how, you know, I like to go grab a couple Jamesons after work with the team. And like, that's how we bond. I get it. I am a fan of Jameson myself. However, think about the long-term goal. We're like, what we're trying to do here, right? If that you can do something that could possibly be perceived as like excluding someone who doesn't drink or making a woman on your team feel uncomfortable, isn't it worth it to make those adjustments so that hopefully by the next decade, 
We've all made those micro adjustments so that business is just conducted in a safer way for everybody. Do you really want to die on the hill of Jameson's downtown with your whole team? You know, like eight rounds of them? Like, is that the hill you want to die on? I ask people that all the time, right? Um, and I think when you get really clear on that and you're like, ah, that's not the hill I want to die on. Okay. It feels a little bit more empowering. It feels like less not fun and more like you're contributing to the greater good here. And we need everyone to step up and do that. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I, you know, that talking about that reminds me of all the times the research you did and the history I found really intriguing and eye-opening and the history, the history of dating, the history of the workplace, uh, the yeah. history of, of the, the, the pay difference and why it, all that was. And um, yes. so it's really cool setting that up and like, how did we get here? Um, so you did a great job with that. Um, well, and I'm glad men love history. I know that. <laughs> and, and I also think it's really helpful because a lot of people take what's happening right now personally. Like it's in a personal assault on them. Um, and it's not entirely personal because a lot of, this is history, like women getting paid less than men. The reason that was initially the case was because it was assumed if you were a woman that your income was just supplementing the man in your life, your husband, your father, your brother. So you didn't really need to make as much because you had the man who was like the primary source and you were just icing on the cake. And that is a, obviously not very, not accurate. Wasn't then. And it certainly isn't now, but we never upgraded that. So it's, it's this idea of like the pay wage gap. You can't argue with it. You can't argue with numbers, right? But it's not personal. I'm not saying you did it. It's just something that is true because of history and the way that things were initially done. And again, if you're a good man, you're a good person. Don't you want to up-level that, then we want everyone to be treated equally and fairly. Yeah. 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 And uh, one, of, one of many great points you make in, in the book that I agree with is, is the notion that neither men nor women are encouraged to, to ask, to check in, to verbalize when anything comes up about anything of, of an intimate nature. And even when you're talking the business world, it, it's intimate. And it, you're talking gender and sexuality and you know going out for drinks and blurring all these lines so it, oh, everything's man. intimate and totally you know, gps systems and cars and phones have kind of made this ir irrelevant but the longest standing joke for men was they don't ask for directions right <laughs> and but men also when i do shows about mental health you know men don't ask for help either mm. and asking for clarity asking for consent that that's a way it's a man asking for help and I think that's been one of the huge barriers to this. But, but uh, you, you make it really simple. In the book, you give like, you know, I get that this is weird. And here, here's two sentences. Ask. And it's kind of just saying, like, everything's weird now. Can I ask you something? And yeah. making it that simple. And, you know, that works. But again, it, again for, it's this whole asking instead of just acting, instead of just doing what they've always been told, what's always worked in the past. It's that, that fear of saying, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Because no one knows what they're doing. That, and I interviewed a lot of women for this book as well, who I 
as a journalist would just call them out as I'm interviewing them. And I'm like, it seems to me like you're sending really mixed signals here because on the one hand, you have a really strong opinion about what the man is doing. But I just asked you if you told him that and you didn't. So how's he supposed to know? Oh, he's supposed to read my mind. Or like he's, he should, they should just know. And I'm like, if he asked you, how would you feel about that? Oh, I don't know. That's kind of awkward. Like it takes like the mystery out of it. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't, that, that's exactly why we're in this situation to begin with. And so what, and I, what I say to men is that get comfortable being uncomfortable because we are all strapping in for at least several years of like, like, just like, it's almost like when you first get paired to dance together and you're like stepping on each other's toes, there's going to be a lot of that. Get comfortable saying, I just, I just want to be, I'm, I don't want to offend anyone and things are, you know, up in the air right now. How do you feel about X, Y, and Z? If you own it like that, like it's charming, it's, um, it's disarming. It does not make you seem unsure of yourself or weak. Um, it makes you sound like you are a really good person who's on the ball and, and thoughtful about what they're doing. If for any reason that is received in any way, but with grace, do not let that be, that don't be like, I'm never doing that again. You mm -hmm. see, like, that's why I don't do that because there are some people who are going to cling to the old way of doing things. That is not the model. That is not what we should be holding on to. And what I heard from some guys, because this question of like whether or not to pay for dates, oh my God, it is still such a conundrum for people, even though it's so old, it's still such a conundrum. And I had some guys being like, no, because, you know, I, I would always ask them like, do you want to pay for the date? And that was kind of, I don't know, do I? I'm like, well, get clear. Do you like paying for dates because it feels good to treat? Like you like treating people and that is something that feels really good to you? Or do you like paying for dates because you think it gives you carte blanche for something later on? Like that's not cool. You don't want to do that. But if you like treating, then just say, I'd love to pay for you tonight um, because I love to treat and it makes me feel really good. Is that but I, you know, only if that feels okay to you. And guys would be like, no, that sounds really good. But what if she's like, no, I'm offended. I like to blah, blah, blah. I'm like, listen, you don't have to date everyone out there. A woman that's going to be really offended by you being really honest about what you want or like, that's probably not someone that you should spend a lot of time with, right? So it's really how I feel, you know, it, and obviously if you're – talking like in the workplace, it's a little bit, you can't leave your coworkers, mm -hmm. but being really open is, that's the way of the future. Checking in to make sure that behavior you previously haven't questioned isn't hurting anyone. That's the good side to be on. Don't worry if you're like overthinking, overcomplicating things. If someone tells you you are overcomplicating things, be like, that's my way. Like that's where thing that's where we're at right now. I'm I'm not going to be the guy who's walking around hurting people. Like that sh that be get comfortable with that identity and let everyone else do the, you know, um go on their own way. Cool. 
what do you see as the ultimate goal of of the Me Too movement? Um, I think that that, that there is like no one singular goal because um, the Me Too movement has so many initiatives or so many missions. I mean, um, when it was first created, uh, the Me Too movement was to raise awareness around sexual assault and violence against women of color. Um, That is not something that we, I mean, we talk about that being the catalyst in the book, but we don't get into that. That's obviously an, you know, and that news stories about that go unnoticed by our country. So that's one goal is to make it so that is not the case. Um, I think, I honestly, the reason I spent, I I did this book um, is because I see the potential for this being so far reaching. For example, the money chapter, it wouldn't really have occurred to me to include money in a book about how men are reacting to modern, um, to Me Too. But it turned out that it really does play, it like, Me Too is changing everything. And I had, I went, so everyone knows Suze Orman, right? Um, The financial guru. So she, I attended an event with her where she had talked about how she'd been in like semi-retirement for like nine years and came out of semi, semi-retirement to re-release her book, Women and Money. And she did that because in her view, not, you know, money would not change every, would not rectify every issue discussed in Me Too, but that one reason women find themselves on the other end of power imbalances where they can't get out of is because financially they are not able to make the move, whether it's like in a personal relationship or work, you know, they have family, they're depending on them and they're like locked in these situations. And so Suze Orman re-released and updated women and money so that women, um, well, so she'd sell some books, but also so that women would get, you know, really take financial responsibility for themselves and hopefully find themselves in better financial situations so that they weren't forced to stay at jobs that where they were being abused or relationships that they were being abused. And I think like, whoa, okay. That I didn't see that one coming. Like not having better understanding of your own personal finances as a way to combat the impact of like, you know, well, what Me Too movement is essentially doing is calling out the impact of injustices of power, right? And how they're, misused. So if personal finance can help you not succumb to that, like that's so, I would not have seen that connection. That's so important. Um, I think from my personal perspective with this book, the overarching goal is, um, I mean, gosh, I had like, I, I had people I interviewed, um, women who were like my mother's age, so 60s, 70s, who were like, you know, when this whole thing started, I was in favor, but now it's gone too far. You think you have it bad. When I was a young 
woman your age, every single boss I had tried to put his hand up my skirt, you don't see me complaining about it. And I really, oh, that hurts because um, we've been so conditioned to think that wrong, that anything that isn't that is fine. And my um, hope is that all of us just take this opportunity to upgrade our own behavior. I mean, even I, you know, I would make jokes without thinking about it. I love humor and I love self-deprecating humor and deprecating humor. I don't, I really tread much more carefully now. Um, And that isn't to say like, I don't have fun, but I, I try to make it so that my humor is not about putting other people down. Um, you know, there are a lot of things I took for granted. So that's my, that's my hope for, um, with the Me Too movement. I'd say there's like, on a po- there's a policy change that needs to happen. And there's like these micro adjustments that need to happen on personal levels cool. as well. Yeah, it's that because a lot of guys come to me feel like, yeah, I was all for it, uh, empowering women, making it safe to, to say that things are happening and stopping these things. And now it's somehow you know, I imagine the place is different for every person of it crossed the line and now it feels like it's just attacking and it's out for retribution and punishing men. Yes. uh, But it's interesting even where where it began. So I didn't, I didn't know that it began with women of color or people of color. So by the time it reached white middle-aged guys, that was already lost. (laughs) (laughs) That's really sad. It's really, really, really sad. It was started, Me Too was initially started by a woman named Tarana Burke. Um, a black woman who had been sexually assaulted and she started it. I mean, like back in like 2006 um, and it had been kind and it was to raise attention to cases of sexual assault against women of color that were rape kits that were not being tested. Um, news cases that wouldn't, couldn't, wouldn't get picked up anywhere in the media. And that is a critically important social cause. And it wasn't until some, you know, um, I think Melissa Milano tweeted me too, like five years later, that then it was like, and then it gets to you and the initial, it's like a game of telephone. So. Yeah. It's like, especially in, in our culture, it it needs this celebrity element to, to cross over and become part. Yes. Doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and that's the other thing that I like about this book and in general, where, like when it's when you're talking about Bill Cosby or celebrities, there's this sort of like, well, it's hap- that's not right, but it's happening really far away. And then when you put it into your own zone and it's very uncomfortable, you're it's much harder to ignore it. So there's a lot of they, you know, if you're listening to a podcast, you can't see me. I'm gesticulating. Um, but there's these little nuances and micro work to be done that I, it's important, right? Like Nicole Kidman is not going to help you here. You need to get really clear on what you want to be doing. Right. Yeah. Cool. It, to me, it seems one of the big goals out of, out of this entire movement is, is a, a greater sense of gender equality. And I wonder what your, your thoughts in the research, like what, what does equality look like? Is it everybody has the same opportunity to do something or is it really the strict thing of, you know, every fire department, police department, hospital, boardroom should be 50-50, men and women? 
I, I counsel always against broad sweeping judgments like that, because as we reveal in the book, like there's no one um, single male experience and there's no single female experience. And I interview plenty of women and men who agree with each other much more than other women and men that I interviewed. You know what I mean? So like, it's not along gendered lines. Like I can't answer that for you because I have my own perspective, but a woman down in Oklahoma is going to maybe feel completely different than me. And I interviewed many women who were like, I don't want, you know, I like being a woman and I want the door opened for me and I want to, you know, be treated. Um, and I want to, you know, be thought of in these like traditional feminine norms. Like I like that. I don't want that going away anywhere. And to that, I say like, that's fine. That's totally fine. I, you know, I don't think that the aim of the Me Too movement is to throw everything out that, you know, you hold dear. I do ask people why, why, but why, why is that important to you? Like, why do you want to have the door held open for you? Why do you want X, Y, and Z? If you are quite sure that the reason you want to have the door held open to you is because you feel like that's the nice thing to do, not like because you couldn't hold it open for yourself, um, then I think, great, take that, right? Where things need to be, so it's like on a personal level, I always leave that to the reader to decide. Like I give you all the information, the the historical context, the way that science works, the way that chemicals and hormones work in your brain. I'm going to give you all that information. And then you can decide as an adult what what you're going to pick and choose from, right? On a policy level, when it comes to work, I do feel really strongly um, that workplaces, and I spoke with one HR woman. She was the most candid HR person I've ever, she was like, I'm like, whoa, HR? <laughs> um, she was dropping like some F-bombs in there. But um, she was real. She was really real. And she was like, any place that does not have diversity, gender diversity, racial diversity, I guarantee you they are going to have a Me Too problem. And that is because, as I said, right, when, when things are, you know, when the workplace was created just for men, um, they get done a certain way. And it's like, it's fine that that worked for them, but like, gosh, I hope you're not the kind of person that only wants to work and like a male, like no women in the office. If that is your thing, again, you should need to investigate that feeling. But if you do want women and men interacting well in the office, then definitely, absolutely put women in positions of power because you need those multiple perspectives making the decisions at the top. We say over and over again when you see like companies that have these terrible advertisements and you're like, oh my God, how did that get out the door? It's always right because they only had like one kind of person making the decisions. So that's where I think like this book operated in many spheres and me too is like implicating in many different ways. I would never 
tell a person how they should think about gender equality. Like, absolutely not. I'll give you all the information and then you make the decision. But then when it, but when it comes to business and policy, we need more women in the top. It's just got to be that way. Cool. Yeah. Got it. Well, cool. Uh, I, I know you have a, a busy day and, and a lot of people to talk to and you're spreading the good word about this very good book. And I do uh, heartily recommend it. Is, is there any way, anything you want to share about how people could follow you, get in touch with you, any of your social media outlets or? Totally. Yeah. Go to my website, cleostiller.net. Um, and then you can find me on any social media platform, Cleo Stiller. You'll find me there. I'm very friendly. And I really do like talking about this because this book really, you know, has almost 75 original interviews in it and nearly 200 research sources. So like I'm down once you read it, come, come to me. Like, let me know what you thought. Let me know what chapter stood out the most. Let me know if you've got a story that you're like, Oh my God, do I have a story for you? (laughs) Anyway. So thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Yeah, it was a pleasure to have you. And again, I do highly recommend the book. It, it's, it's full of research and interviews, yet also very casual and open. Um, it is really like having a conversation with you and you're kind of just sharing the things you've discovered. So uh, again, <laughs> I, I appreciate it and recommend it. And uh, so wherever you're discovering modern manhood or discovering that real men feel, uh, please give us a like, comment, subscribe, spread the good word. And until next time, be good to yourself. Thank you for listening to Real Men Feel. Reach out to us at realmenfeel at gmail.com. Learn more about Andy Grant at theandygrant.com. Until next time, visit realmenfeel.org or the Real Men Feel Facebook group and share what you thought of this episode. Please give this podcast a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you are discovering Real Men Feel.